Please turn to Daniel chapter 6 verse 1. While you're turning, Polycarp, who lived from A.D. 70 to 155 A.D., was the bishop of a place called Smyrna. He was a godly man. He had actually known the Apostle John personally. When he was urged by the Roman proconsul to renounce Christ, Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have respect to your age, said the official. Simply say, away with the atheists and be set free. See, pagans considered Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Greco-Roman gods. The aged Polycarp pointed to the pagan crowd and said, away with the atheists. And the result of that was he was burned at the stake. And as he was being burned at the stake, gave joyful testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how important is your relationship to God? Is prayer a priority in your life? Would you pray if it meant risking your life? Well, today we'll read about somebody who did just that. Daniel. As we explore Daniel in the lion's den. This is in the part of Daniel that has a particular message for the Gentile world. And in the last chapter, God showed that he's greater than any world power and that he can humble even the mightiest. In this chapter, God is going to show that he is real and he acts in history. This chapter easily divides into four parts. The first two main parts are what I call the prayer plot. And then the second is Daniel's difficulty, or the lion's den. And the third is Darius's decree. And then there's a brief part where it talks about Daniel's success. So, Daniel in the lion's den. Chapter 6, verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and that over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that the um, satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now the critics of the historical accuracy of the Bible claim that the author of Daniel made a mistake here. Because the conqueror of the Babylonian Empire was Cyrus, the Persian. And here, and in the last, chap last verse of the last chapter, we have Darius the Mede. Who's Darius the Mede? So they say, wow, there you have it, there must be a mistake. Well, first of all, it would have been impossible. I don't care if somebody was writing this centuries later. They all knew about Cyrus. It would have been impossible to miss such an important historical figure. That would be like talking about U.S. history without George Washington. 
you know, that in a couple hundred years we'll forget who George Washington was or Abraham Lincoln? I don't think so. Not likely. Secondly, the last chap verse of this chapter talks about Cyrus. So Cyrus is definitely on Daniel's radar scope. That is not the case that he forgot him. So who, are, who is this Darius the Mede? Well, first some have concluded that Cyrus and Darius are the same person. If you look at Daniel 6.28, Cyrus um, was about the right age. He was a Persian, though, not a Mede. And he was the son of Cambyses, not an Ahasuerus. So there's a couple of contradictions. But you could translate Daniel 6.28 that Daniel prospered in the reign of Cyrus, even the reign of Darius. You could take them as being equivalent, two names for the same guy. And that's not unheard of. Uh, we know Solomon, for instance, had the name Solomon. He also had the name Jedediah. Those are both his names. Um, so those are possibilities. The second, and I think, you know, also not quite the right solution, is some consider Cyrus's son Cambyses as a viable possibility. But the age, the nationality, and the father's name are all wrong, so that's not too likely. Third, and better, another candidate for Darius is Cyrus's military commander. Now, his name in Persian was Ubaru. How's that for an attractive name? Maybe you're going to rush out and change your name to Ugbaru. Uh, <laughs> but the difference in name could be explained by considering Darius either an alternate name, a throne name, or a title. Because the root meaning of the Persian uh, Daryush is he who possesses. So it could be a title. Ugbaru was the governor of a group called the Gutim, and that could have been considered Median territory, so you could have called him Darius the Mede. But there's a problem with him. He died just three weeks after the fall of Babylon. So, yeah, he commanded the troops, they took the city, three weeks later he's dead. So he would not be a really great candidate for Darius the Mede. The fourth and I think best one is Cyrus's governor who had a similar sounding name, Gubaru, okay, um, a Greek version of that was Gobrios, uh, he was appointed governor of Babylon. From a Babylonian perspective, such as Daniel had, to be the governor of Babylon would be tantamount to being the new king. And so we have a greater king and a lesser king. Well, we have that kind of arrangement that was done a lot in the ancient world. Uh, so, as with Ugbaru, the difference in name can be explained by considering it an alternative name, a throne name, or I think a title. And, um, you know, it does look like it's the best alternative to me. Um, from Daniel's perspective, he would be the king. It even says in 531 that he received the kingdom. That's not the way you would speak of, of a conqueror. That's the way you would speak of somebody who had a delegated sub-kingship. Again, a great king and a lesser king. Okay. So I think that's the best candidate, though you know, more information may be dug out of the sand one day, but I think um, Gobrios is probably the best candidate. Anyway, he appointed 120 satraps over what had been Babylon. Now, the term satrap is a, is a Persian term. It means protector of the empire. And since the entire empire was divided into 20 to between 20 and 31 satrapies, these satrapies could not have been the overall Persian satrapy. They must have been smaller ones. 
So it would be like governors of counties as opposed to governors of states. Um, so that would be this would be consistent with the way the Greeks reported the term, fellows like Herodotus, and it would also be translated then something more like provincial governors, not, uh, not governors of an entire state or region. Um, there is a tablet that the archaeologists found um, that purported to be Cyrus, a statement about the annals of uh, Cyrus's rule, and it said that Gubaru appointed governors in Babylon. It didn't say how many, unfortunately. That would, that would have been a nice confirmation, too. But we know that the guy left in charge by Cyrus of Babylon did appoint governors, and that dovetails exactly with what Daniel's telling us. Darius also established three commissioners. So there would have been roughly 40 satraps to each commissioner. And Daniel, because of his experience, and probably because he predicted a Persian victory, was, get, was appointed one of those. He was viewed as a friendly by the new regime. The word for commissioners also comes from a Persian term. It means stand at the ready. It means a chief or an overseer or a high official. It's been translated supervisor or official or administrator. The idea was that the satraps would be accountable to the commissioners, especially concerning the thing that was most important in the ancient world in governance, tax revenue. Things haven't changed much, have they? <laughs> That was what they were really concerned about. See, the phrase that the king might not suffer loss seems to indicate there was a problem with corruption in the system. Again, things haven't changed much, have they? Um, this has been translated so the king would not be defrauded or so the king wouldn't be cheated. So some of these folks in the gathering of the taxes were keeping a little bit for themselves, a little bit more than they should have. Daniel performed better than all the others because of his God-given excellence and his character. And the result was Darius was seriously considering Daniel to be his prime minister. Now, those who were a little corrupt, or a lot corrupt, saw that as a threat. This guy's a reformer. We can't have that. This guy's honest. That prompted an investigation. They're trying to find some dirt on him. Find a way to smear him politically. But no ground of accusation could be found because Daniel was both diligent and honest. I'm, I'm struck by, and this is a bipartisan statement, um, the political ads of late. Have you been following them on the TV? It's basically Mr. X is a crook. Don't vote for him. And then Mr. X has an ad saying, Mr. Y is a crook. Don't vote for him. Yeah. It's possible they're all crooks. <laughs> that could well be. <laughs> but it's interesting to watch the finger pointing going on. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that we find. And that's the kind of thing that they hoped to pull on Daniel. But it didn't work. They couldn't get anything on him. Because he was unimpeachably honest. This actually begins to open up kind of a sub-theme in this that I'd like to talk about. It's, it's been pointed out that Daniel, like all men, certainly sinned. Uh, but the Bible, interestingly, never records a sin that he did. Even his enemies couldn't find any. 
that introduces an idea of what's what's called typology. And the typology is is um, basically when you see something in the scripture where it's so much like something else that it makes you think of it. And in this case, and Chuck Smith noted that Daniel is a type of Christ. Just like Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Nobody could find any fault in Daniel either. Now, I'm not saying Daniel was, was sinless like Christ, but he does remind us of Christ. In that sense, he is a type. Okay, uh, It's not quite a prediction because this is 2020 hindsight. Looking back, we can see that this reminds us of that. But Daniel, I think, is, is as we'll see through this, is strikingly a type of Christ. Um, his political enemies concluded there was only one possible weakness, only one way they could get at him. And that would be his religion. We've got to get him with religion. The guy's a fanatic. He prays all the time. I had, uh, <laughs> had a, a relative one time say to me that uh, they were worried because they heard the president talks to God all the time. And this was a while back. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, Lois and I talk to God all the time, too. And they looked at us kind of funny, like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, and I said, it's called prayer. <laughs> okay. But you see, that was the way it can be spun. We can try to get him on religion. He's some sort of fanatic. Um, the conspirators began to plot to put together a situation where they could place Daniel in a position of having to choose between man's law and God's. And they were confident, if you put Daniel in that kind of position, what's he going to do? He's going to make the wrong choice from the standpoint of the world. So, they designed what I call the Satrap's Trap. <laughs> okay. And then they set the Satrap's Trap, starting in verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. The conspirators suddenly pressed their demands on King Darius. They didn't want to give him too much time to think about this. Now, this wasn't necessarily all 122 of them. Uh, this was just the ringleaders. But they rushed in. The phrase that's translated in the New American Standard came by agreement actually means to uh, throng somebody, to tumultuously descend on them. And it's that idea. It's been translated. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king. Uh, another translation, they descended on the king. They're giving this, as we would say, a full court press. They're pushing just as hard as they know how. And they, they greet him. Oh, King Darius, live forever. That's like saying, long live the king. And they asked for this injunction. 
that forbade anybody from praying to any god or man besides the king for 30 days on penalty of being thrown into a den of lions. Now, notice here, they claim to have the support of all the satraps and the commissioners. Was that true? I can think of one very important one that got left out. One of the commissioners. Daniel had not been consulted, most certainly. This injunction has religious overtones. The Aramaic phrase translated makes a petition uh, breaks down in two words. The first is a verb which can mean to utter a prayer. And the second one is a noun which can mean prayer. So it could be translated, anyone prays a prayer um, to any god or human, or prays to any god or human, or prays to anyone. Uh, that, I think, is what they were getting at. If you don't take it as uh, concerning prayer, then an absurd situation develops. Imagine a child could not ask its mother for food without risking death by lions because they asked something from somebody other than the king. Or the mother, if, they were, if she were asked for food by her child, would say, don't ask me for anything, go ask the king. Well, I don't think that's what they were trying to set up. Okay, that would be absurd. Prayer is clearly what they were getting at. And that's the forbidden practice. See, the conspirators knew the character of Daniel. They knew his consistency. Isn't it interesting? Madeline Murray O'Hare tried to get prayer out of the public schools. Of course, as long as they have testing, there will be prayer in school. Um, <laughs> but the conspirators asked the king then to sign this document so that it will become irrevocable law according to Persian custom. See, they had a way of providing legal stability. They considered all their laws irrevocable. I don't think that was the brightest idea in the world, personally. That means you, if you pass a bad law, you know, the king issues a bad decree, he has no chance to fix it. So at least they were smart enough to put a time limit on it. So it would expire. And I think that was probably how they got around most of this. But that was their, that was their method. We see this, uh, it's also mentioned in the book of Esther, and it's also mentioned in the uh, historian Diodorus Siculus, um, that, they, that this was Persian custom. They brought the law of Daniel's God and the law of the Medes and Persians into conflict. Both of those laws may not be changed or revoked. This is the irresistible force and the supposedly immovable object. What's going to give? What's the solution? King Darius signed this injunction and for 30 days prayer became illegal to anybody other than Darius. Now why did he sign this? Well he's probably flattered Partly. I mean, this appeals to your vanity if you're a pagan king. But also, he probably saw this as a way to unify the kingdom around himself. Now, Persians weren't given to considering themselves gods. Uh, their kings didn't have that problem, uh, such as the Egyptian kings did. But they did consider themselves the representative of the gods. Okay, and that's where Darius would have thought, okay, this is okay, because we can unify the empire now. I've just recently taken over from Babylon. Everybody has to come to me, and as a representative to the gods, they can make their prayer through me to the gods. 
he would have seen it as an astute move politically and religiously to unify his empire. That brings us to the springing of the satrap's trap. And that begins with Daniel's disobedience. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Gotta love Daniel. <laughs> With full knowledge of the injunction, he went home and he continued his practice of kneeling and praying three times a day. His prayers consisted both of requests and thanksgiving, just like Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Daniel had that peace. There's an injunction. There's a, there's a den of lions with his name on it. And he's praying anyway. He doesn't change his pattern. He continued as he had been doing previously. Just like Peter would later decide and tell the Sanhedrin, Daniel had decided, we must obey God rather than men. You know, back in the first chapter when it was an issue where they weren't trying to get him to sin, there was just some confusion, he came up with creative alternatives. But in this case, and in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's case, when they were trying to get them to sin, there was no compromise possible. And he disobeyed. He went with the higher authority. God said do it, and the government says don't. Sorry, you got to disobey. He didn't change. It's not only the law of the Medes and Persians that doesn't change, it's Daniel that doesn't change. Now, I thought about this and I realized that the consequences for this decree would have been avoidable if Daniel had been a lesser man. For instance, there was nothing in the decree that said you have to pray. And so Daniel could have simply omitted praying for one month. Nothing, nothing bad would have happened to him. But Daniel's fellowship with God was more important to him than the possible consequences. It was important enough to him to maintain fellowship with God that he risked his neck to do it. <coughs> now, he could have kept his praying secret for 30 days. That's a possibility too. He could have prayed silently behind closed doors. However, since the roof chamber where he prayed had open windows facing Jerusalem and 
people prayed aloud back in that day. They also read aloud. They didn't read silently, which is kind of interesting. His prayers were audible to, to spying ears. See, Daniel would have considered these options dishonest, a poor testimony, yeah, and cowardly. And Daniel was neither of those. God does not change in changing times, and neither should his servants. Now, what happened? The conspirators broke in and caught Daniel in the act. They, you know, there's no denying it. He was on his knees, crying out to God. The Aramaic word translated came by agreement here again means be in a tumult, you know, come <laughs> wronging in. So they basically, I can see them with their battering ram going, break down the door. You know, and they rush in and there's Daniel on his knees. Caught red need, if you will. <laughs> okay, they came thronging in. They descended on Daniel. They went straight to Darius with this. And they began reminding him of the injunction like he's forgotten. And then Darius replied, of course, the injunction's law. It's irrevocable. And then they sprung the trap. Informing on Daniel. They, they don't give him the honor of his position. He's one of the three commissioners. But they scornfully refer to him as one of the exiles from Judah. They frame his civil disobedience as a personal disrespect of the king and his law. He pays no attention to you and your law. And they complain that he keeps on making his petition three times a day. That's their complaint. Yeah. <laughs> kind of an indirect compliment, <laughs> isn't it? You know, Get hauled into court. Your Honor, if it please the court, our, our problem with this guy is he prays consistently. Hmm. They complained because Daniel did not change to accommodate Darius's law. The nature of the Christian faith marks us all for the lions. Because we're out of, the out of step with the world around us. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were standing when everybody else was kneeling. And Daniel is kneeling when everybody else is standing. You're out of phase. Paul promised us one of these verses. You know those little promise box verse things? I bet you never find this verse in there. In one of those. Um, 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul promised Indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Count on it. On some level if nothing else at least verbal abuse. Abuse. But on some level, you will be persecuted. Now, that put Darius in a dilemma. Because Darius appreciated Daniel. Apparently, they'd struck up somewhat of a friendship. Darius was probably favorably disposed toward Daniel because Daniel predicted a, a Persian victory um, when, they, when Babylon fell. And Daniel was honest. What's not to love about Daniel? Somebody in IRS that's honest. You know, how great is that? <laughs> so, you know, the king didn't want to carry out this, this, this uh, decree. And then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed 
and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. By the way, if you were Darius, wouldn't that begin to irritate you just a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it would have. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Darius realizing the conspiracy that had happened, realizing he had been had, was very upset. And he spent the entire day until sunset seeking a legal way to find some loophole to save Daniel's life. But the conspirators pressed Darius again very hard. They came in tumultuously. They thronged on him. They were pushing. They descended on the king. They put the pressure on. Which, by the way, this is reminiscent of another crowd, isn't it? A type of another crowd that will demand death for an innocent man. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. You know, eerie comparison between these things. Daniel was in grave difficulty. The king had failed. He found no way to get Daniel off the hook. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing could be changed in regard to Daniel. There's that word change again. Hmm. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. And Darius gave in to their demands, and he had Daniel cast in the lion's den. And he expressed the wish that Daniel's God would deliver him. The idea is the king is saying, I've tried to save you, but I've failed. Now your God must save you. He also recognized again that Daniel continuously served his God. Daniel had a testimony with this pagan ruler. He knew that he was a person of, of integrity and, and constance. So they rolled a stone over the entrance to the lion's den, and it was sealed with Darius' seal and the seals of his nobles. The purpose of the sealing was to ensure that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. That no one was going to sneak in and let Daniel out in the middle of the night or you know, throw a bunch of hamburger to the, to the lions to keep him off of Daniel. That's not going to happen. It's sealed. Those precautions didn't, take, didn't prevent the living God from delivering his prophet, of course. And again... This is reminiscent of Jesus' tomb. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Why? It was a vain attempt to stop the resurrection. The Roman guard and the Roman governor's seal were not able to prevent the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, the same thing. Darius returned to the palace, and he spent a sleepless night, feeling neither like food or fun. <laughs> Just wasn't a good night for him. So what happened? The king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So early in the morning the sun arose and so did Darius. He hurried to the lion's den, obviously deeply concerned about Daniel. A troubled Darius cried out to Daniel, not knowing if anybody was alive to answer. And the word translated trouble there means pained or grieved, sad. He was very, very upset at the loss of a friend and a loyal subject. And this has been translated, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Darius recognized Daniel's God, though, in, the, in what he said, as a living God, not a dead idol. And he also recognized that Daniel was a faithful servant of God. And therefore, I think he entertained some hope. But there's also a note of unsureness there, of whether even Daniel's God could deliver from lions. Imagine his relief when he heard Daniel's voice saying, Long live the king! <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> it's been remarked that uh, the great preacher Spurgeon once said it was a good thing the lions didn't try to eat Daniel. And they never would have enjoyed him because he was 50% grit and 50% backbone. <laughs> He's an inspiration. He even inspired the Apostle Paul. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul said, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now what was Paul thinking of? Daniel was quick to give God the glory. He said the angel of the Lord had kept the lions from harming him. And just like the incident with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego this may have been an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Sometimes when it says the angel of the Lord, that's what it's talking about. Daniel asserted his innocence before both God and the king. And in the ancient world, they believed in trial by ordeal. And if you survived the ordeal, that was proof of your innocence. So they would have, this would have been proof of Daniel's innocence to them. Now, of course, had Daniel died by the lions as a martyr, that would, uh, that would not have been a good conclusion to draw that he wasn't innocent because he died. So God's not endorsing trial by, by uh, ordeal, but since they believed that, they would have believed him to be innocent. Darius ordered Daniel taken out, and upon inspection, he was found to be uninjured. Now, until last year, I had a cat, and if you look at my hands... There are thin scratches all over it because I love to wrestle with my cat. And that's just a little, you know, four-pound cat, something like that. Uh, she tore my hands up. <laughs> okay. Now, imagine a den full of lions. And you spend the night with them. And you haven't got so much as a scratch. 
No nips, no scratches, no bruises, nothing. Totally uninjured. The reason stated is simply that he trusted in God. That made Daniel one, according to Hebrews 11, who by faith shut the mouths of lions. It was his faith that God was responding to. As righteous as Daniel was, that wasn't the issue ultimately in the deliverance. It was his faith. You know, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. And only God knows when that time is. But there are times and things that should have, I should have bought the farm, as they say, and I didn't. Why? Because I guess God has something for me to do. But one day, he'll be done with that plan, and it'll be time for me to move on. And when that happens, then that's fine. Who wants to hang around then anyway? But as long as God has use for you, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. Hebrews 11 lists several heroes of faith in the first 35 verses. Men such as Daniel, who by faith accomplished great things. But I do want to point out also that sometimes the outcome is martyrdom too. In verses 36 through 40 of Hebrews 11, it lists others. Also great people of faith who were martyred for their faith. You may be called upon for one or the other. Both are done by faith. Got to remember the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 3. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. God is able to deliver, but even if he doesn't, we're going to follow him. And whatever happens, he delivers us out of the world's hands because they can't do anything past martyring you. That's it. Whatever happens, you can trust yourself to God's care, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now Darius, who like I said, probably gotten somewhat irritated by now at the conspirators anyway, ordered that the conspirators and their families be cast into the lion's den they were guilty of lying about Daniel's support for the decree and uh, they were guilty of malicious accusation conspiring to rob the king of one of his most able counselors. As a matter of fact, where it says they maliciously accused the uh, Aramaic term there means literally they ate pieces of, you know, it's that violent. But proving, the lions proved to indeed be ravenous, lest someone think the lions had just been overfed. They mauled them before they even got to the ground. Now, what's this, this thing about throwing them, their families, their children, everything in there, that is contrary to the law of Moses. Fathers, according to Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone will be put to death for his own sin. But... This isn't Israel. This is Persia. 
Okay, and ancient despots employed this sort of extreme punishment. And there's a very practical reason why they did, because in ancient societies they practiced retaliation. Okay, you kill me, my brother goes and kills you, and then your brother goes and kills his brother, and back and forth until there's nobody left. Well, you want to make sure that no one is left to retaliate. You kill everybody, the whole family. All of them you can get a hold of. And so ancient despots did that frequently. So I, I don't see Daniel saying, yeah, and that was a good thing for them to do. He's just reporting the fact that this is what a Persian ruler would do. It does illustrate a principle, though. In Genesis 12.3, God promised Abraham in the first mention of the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. You can trace that one down through history. Look at Haman, who sought to destroy Israel in the book of Esther. He ended up hanging from the same gallows he intended the Jew Mordecai to hang on. Um, there's, look at the Nazis, who murdered millions of God's people, and yet, were, what, were, what was Germany like at the end of the war? A heap of rubble. And Hitler put a bullet in his head. Yeah. Societies, peoples, you can gauge their rise and their fall by what they do to Israel, for what they do to God's people, the Jews. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Count on. Solomon said the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. So, that brings us down to Darius's decree. Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. It's an interesting royal decree, and it follows the ones of Nebuchadnezzar. He decreed that everyone in his kingdom was to revere and reverence Daniel's God. And he switched to poetic form then, and he made three main points in his little poem. First of all, unlike idols, Daniel's God is alive. Second, unlike human kingdoms and empires, God's kingdom will not be destroyed. In rapidly changing times, God does not change. He is an anchor. Third, God acts in history in mighty ways. And the example that he cites then is Daniel and the deliverance from the lions. Daniel's God is alive. Daniel's God rules. And Daniel's God delivers not like the other gods. And then we see Daniel's success. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius as a sub-king of Babylon, Darius was, and in the reign of the great king, Cyrus of Persia. That verse proves that Daniel was not unaware of Cyrus. There's no mistake here. Daniel's last revelation, chapters 10 through 12, was during the third year of Cyrus. 
So Daniel lived to see the exiles return to Judah. He lived to see God's promises fulfilled. Now, how do we apply this? Well, the first thing, Daniel's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's innocent. No fault was found in him. That reminds us of the sinless Christ. The den was sealed with a stone to prevent any rescue. That reminds us of the stone that sealed the entrance of Jesus' tomb in a vain attempt to stop the resurrection. Nevertheless, God rescued Daniel from certain death, and that reminds us as a type of Jesus' resurrection. Personal application. In changing times, God doesn't change. Therefore, we must not change our devotion to God. Our relationship with the Lord should be such a priority that we would risk everything for it. And we can entrust ourselves to God because He cares for us. By faith, we can shut the mouth of lions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, you are the living God. Your kingdom doesn't change, doesn't go away. You reign forever. And you act. We've seen your hand move. Lord, may we trust you all the more to see even greater things. Thank you for shutting the mouth of the lions. Thank you for delivering your people. And the greatest deliverance of all you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.